0: Last week, my guest was Sahar Paz, and we talked about using our voices to make the changes we want to see in the world. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that episode, I encourage you to go back. But before you do, I'd encourage you to listen to this episode with my friend, Rima Sukumaran, sharing her story, her memoir. I'd like to say that We talk about topics that may be triggering for some, and so if you are triggered by talk of rape or mental illness, please be advised. And sometimes I'm dining a la carte. No matter how I'm dining, it promises to be delicious. Let's dig in. Rima Sukumaran is wife to an amazing husband and mother to six beautiful, crazy, busy sons. She's a speaker and a trainer whose goal is to bring light to the topic of clergy abuse, often thought to be taboo. She speaks openly to leaders about recognizing symptoms of unhealthy boundaries, burnout, and focuses on self-care and respect. Her memoir, Beautifully Broken, was recently released. She is on an exciting journey of using her pain and heartache to find healing and wholeness. Hi, Rima. It is so good to see you. Hey, Sadie. It's so great to see you too. I'm so happy you said yes to being on the podcast because I'm really excited about your book. (laughs) I'm so grateful you asked me. Thank you. I'm excited about my book too. Yeah, I mean... So beautifully broken. I'm going to be linking it down in the show notes, and I'm going to make sure that everybody knows how to find you. But before we get into all of that, I want to start with a question, just so that people can get to know you a little bit better. And so okay. that question is: What are you really, really passionate about right now?
1: Um, there's so many things I'm passionate about. I mean, my biggest passion is my family. Um, I'm a mom of six boys. So life revolves around them and my husband, Um, and so I'm very passionate about them. But my second passion is my book. It's my baby. It's, you know, been a long time in the making, and I'm really passionate to share my story because I think there's so many people that can resonate with it and share my story, and I really believe
0: I'm a voice for people that can't speak out. I'm so excited to hear you say that because I feel that we all have that. We all have things that happen to us and they're not meant to happen just to us, but to help us share stories with other people that might help them to get through whatever it is that they're getting through. And so I'm so proud of you. Um, I don't know, I don't think I mentioned that I am, that you and I have been friends since high school I mean not high school college yeah (laughs) yes we met each other at university and so and then we reconnected on Facebook and so that's been I don't know if we even want to say how many years ago well it's been like I don't know like 86 I think or 87
1: 1987 I think was our freshman year right yeah 80 86
0: 87 was freshman year that's right (laughs) Wow. Okay. See, (laughs) 80s, 90s, knots. That's like 30 already. (laughs) Oh my goodness. That seems so crazy. I know. I know. So uh, let's get into talking about your book, Beautifully Broken. I read your book in like two days because (laughs) (laughs) first of all, it's so, it's really something when you're reading a book, about someone that you know, or that you've, you've been around and then you're reading things and you're going, oh my God, I had no idea, you know, and, and then you think back on how you treated that person or something and you go, gosh, I'm, I'm so glad I treated them nice. You know what I mean? Okay. and we, which reinforces the idea of you just never know what someone is going through and mm-hmm. so you know you should you should be cognizant of that you know yeah, very much um, so. but why don't you give us a quick well before you do that what inspired you or what compelled you to even write a
1: book? So my book I started writing probably, 26 years ago. So actually right after I got married. And it's been an interesting journey because I think initially when I was writing, I don't know that I was necessarily writing a book as much as venting. I had a lot of anger. And, you know, I didn't realize truthfully that it was even anger. I was just venting because I've always journaled. I've always written. That's just my way of releasing. And, you know, I had a lot of frustration with my mom. Um, with our relationship and a lot of times you can't say that kind of stuff you know I wouldn't have said it to my mom because I would never have wanted to hurt her and so you know I just started writing and it's interesting because my book has had so many different versions or edits of them you know like I mean I think I must have written my book probably maybe 10 different times and each time the story evolves you know and once you have kids your perspective changes, you know, once you have teenagers, it changes. So, you know, it was just interesting. And then, you know, my mom and I, our relationship evolved as I matured, as I was able to maybe feel empathy for her instead of anger. And, you know, it's been really interesting because my book had to be written when it was written because my mom's death allowed me freedom to truly be honest and actually be a voice for her and me which I don't think I could have done with her being alive
0: because I was so worried about how she would feel. Right. And you are, you're first generation, right? Correct? First generation Canadian? No, so I actually was born in India. Yes. Oh, so you were, okay.
1: Yeah. But I mean, I came when I was two. So pretty much, you know, I'm about as Canadian as you can get. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Right. But I, you know, also being a first generation Haitian American, so my parents were born in Haiti, I understand that trepidation to say certain things to your or with your parents around because of the just because of culture, you know, culturally and also how are they going to feel about it? personally and you would never want to do that so I totally get that yeah so you know I don't I don't want to rush to the end back of the book so I'm not even going to go there (laughs) okay okay (laughs) but I want you to if you could give us a quick synopsis of the book and then I want to kind of get into a few other questions that I have but go ahead get into the synopsis
1: Okay. So basically the basis of my book is that my mom, my two siblings and I lived with abuse. My dad was, my mom was a battered woman. And as children, we lived in fear of my dad's explosive nature. You know, we didn't know what would set him off. I mean, he obviously had good sides to him, but fear was what we lived with constantly. And later on, after I left home, I trusted Well, I always looked up to role models, like um, to men as role models, because my dad wasn't something I wanted. And so I would look at pastors, teachers, friends, dads, as something that I wish, you know, my dad was. And so, and I trusted them and I ended up trusting one of our pastors and was raped by him. And, you know, my story kind of goes from there and, and how much abuse defines who you are, in a good way and in a bad way, you know, you kind of have to work through that. And then my story is also about my happily happily ever after, you know, meeting my husband and just how we journeyed through that to today, how we got to the point. Um, my book also talks a little bit about my mental health and how, you know, you most people don't go through struggles without it affecting them in some way. And for me, it all kind of came to a head and it was a real... I don't even know the word to use, but it was just a very scary time for our family, you know, with me really struggling mentally and how we've kind of come through that and realizing that mental health is something we need to talk about. So my book talks about issues that I think most people don't speak about. You know, my mom, she shared only once about being abused and that person shut her down and she never spoke about it again. You know, so we live with this abuse that nobody knew about or people knew and shut their eyes to. It's a generational thing too, I I, I think, you know, but yes, my book is really about being a voice to people and to say, you know, most of us are all broken somehow and with patience and love and support and counseling, there's so many ways that we can still have a whole life by being gentle with ourselves.
0: Right. Being, being gentle with ourselves. Absolutely. Yeah. So I read your book and, you know, I was reading it and I was like, you know, there were times where I was just, I was horrified and there were times where I was just sad. And then there were times where, you know, I did, you know, I smiled and laughed through, I mean, you, you, you wrote things in a funny way. Um, even if they were kind of, Sometimes a little bit, uh, you know, embarrassing, but you wrote them in a funny way. And I would be like, oh my God, I can so see it. Like it's very visual in my head. <laughs> um, so one of the questions that came up for me, especially, is because you you wrote about think- feeling that people might have known that something was going on, but no one ever stepped forth to say anything. Mm-hmm. And I also know that your, the community that you were in is predominantly white, is that correct? Yeah. And I want to know if you feel or if you think that maybe that might have had something to do with the fact that you were being left to your own devices, so to speak.
1: So, the community that I lived in, yes, was predominantly white, but it was also very upper, upper middle class, upper, upper, what am I saying? Upper <laughs> middle class. Upper, yes. middle, upper class, middle class. class. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, there were minorities, but they were also upper middle class. And so they had the respect of the community. And I really feel like, you know, we were poor. My dad was just, just, creature this character from somewhere else and he had no shame so you know he was very eccentric and very obnoxious to some degree you know and so yes i do feel that way i feel like um like you know i know like for example our principal definitely knew you know because things happen and i would actually go to him like for example one time my youngest brother had done something and he was suspended. And I went to the principal and I said, look, can he have an in-school suspension? Because if my dad finds out, he's going to beat us. Right. So it wasn't a secret. I mean, obviously, here's a teenager coming to the principal saying, you know, looking out for my brother. So yes, I do p- believe that people knew. I hesitate to say it, it It was prejudice. though. I think there was parts of that. I think it had more to do with my dad, you know, and our, our, our that we were poor, you know, So we weren't in the status where a lot of people like we weren't in that bubble, I guess is the best way to say it. Right. So
0: so maybe it could have been more of an a socioeconomic prejudice versus a racial prejudice. I was trying to think of that word. More than a a social prejudice. Like not
1: coming to me.
0: Yeah. Oh, I understand. Just (laughs) (laughs) say. We of a certain age, we, that happens quite often. (laughs) Um, So, you know, so it's possible that it was more of that and less race related, but more socioeconomically, um, economic. So people just assumed that because you were poor, that, that would be, that's just your life or that's just how it was. Right.
1: Now, after saying that, I have to say there was some prejudice because now I'm thinking of a mutual friend of ours, Linda, whose parents had money and were in that bubble, but she still felt racism too, you know? So yeah, I would say that it did play a part. I'm kind of thinking as we're talking about it. So, I, but again, there was, like, there was maybe three or four minorities in my school, right. families you know? Right. So sure. I think that now that you say that, and I'm thinking it through that, yes, I think it was a, a few factors that played into that.
0: Right. And so you kind of just left you by the wayside, which is, you yeah. know, so sad, yeah. but then, then you had this pastor violate you, rape you, you know, and, and, and then continue to be part of the society and so yeah. and he was white no right he wasn't he wasn't what he was wasn't. he no he was black he was a black pastor he yeah. but he continued to be part of this society right yeah. and was able to make it seem as if you were were you had a few screws loose like you were making this all up That's in right. your head right? How? See, I think it, that he, sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. Go
1: ahead. I think that the reason why pastor was accepted is because, I mean, you know, he was white, so to speak in the, you know, in the way he presented himself and he brought money into the school. Like it was his gregariousness. It was his ability to draw students in, like he was teaching for the school, you know? Right. And so he he was able to get away with stuff like, like, you know, like the administration kind of looked the other way because they wanted him there. Right. You know,
0: right. So. Because he was bringing in money and you guys were poor. So wait, right. wait, weigh, weigh, weigh your yeah. options. <laughs> it's just, exactly. exactly. You know, right. Yeah. That, that is so, it's, it's so unfortunate, you know, when you did come out with your story, when you, when you were finally able, strong, and when you found the strength to come out with your story, how did that work out? I know I think you talk about it in the book, but I'd like for you to just say it out loud for the podcast.
1: I mean, right after the rape, I mean, I was very angry, you know, and yeah. immediately I thought to call the police, but if you read my story, you'll realize why I did not. Yes, because they weren't really there for us. But it was probably two years later, I believe, after the rape that, you know, I was engaged. My my now husband and I were going through the premarital counseling. And it was coming obviously be t- between us in the sense that I wanted it to just go away. And Sanj wanted to really hurt this person. And we didn't know exactly how to handle it. And so we shared it with our counselor. And he had said to me, Rima, you can't,
0: you can't just let over this it. go away.
1: Exactly. And he was the first person that said, I will help you if you're willing to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And so I am surprised, to be honest, looking at the younger me, how much strength I actually really did have. Because I do believe that had someone stood up and said, I'll help you even that uh, in that time of my rape, I think that I would have stood up and, and done something. So that strength that the younger me had always surprises me a bit because I was like my mom my I was fearful and coward with anger or kept things bottled things up but I was also it made me mad to think that somebody else could go through this you know right and so right that is what allowed me to speak up and then our counselor said to me what he wanted me to do which was tape recorder, tape recorder. um conversations with my racist. that was one of the scariest things I've ever done you know oh my God. And, well it's yeah. back like it's back 26 years no even longer than that 28 years so we have the big tape recorder right Yeah. and yeah. the landline and you're like putting the landline to the tape recorder you're pressing record and you, ha- yeah. you have to hope it's recording right you don't want it to hear the sound and oh my goodness, it was just it was crazy right and I was petrified And yet, you know, I mean, I personally think God gave me the courage to do that. He gave me the courage through my whole story, you know, right? beginning as a little girl to survive. And um, so I recorded him. And in the recording, I said to him that you took my virginity away without my consent.
0: I Mm -hmm. wish
1: I could have said you raped me, but I was too scared to say that with him.
0: Right. On the phone. Now Mm -hmm. I
1: did, um, before this, I did confront him a couple of other times um went through a letter that I was really angry about and I did tell him he raped me in that letter but anyways the phone conversation was recorded for him to to admit well actually he didn't deny it so he didn't say yes I raped you but he didn't deny it you know and I had a lot of conversations about how I felt and how he betrayed me and so we kept that tape according to the principal right and you know, initially he denied it, but when he said there was a, a tape, then he asked what we wanted. So we kind of went from there.
0: Right. And the principal, what did the principal do? <laughs>
1: <laughs> the principal was one of his best friends. So, you know, it was, I mean, it still maddens me to think about yes. it, you know, but the principal did what he had to do, which was basically... He went to my rapist and said, the two things I want is one for you to turn in your ministerial license
0: yeah,
1: and two to not have, like, to not be in a position with young people. Well, he did this stuff through action, but my rapist was allowed to write the school community a letter, right. you know, and in the letter, he basically said that around this time, his mom had died and a young lady came into his life and took advantage of him. And because of that, he was... <laughs> you know, he was paying, um, paying the consequence of what happened, you know? So it was just, it was unreal, right. you know? Right. But blame, um, blame the victim. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Wow. You know, you, you, you talk about how the, the, the principal was really good friends with this pastor and it brings up this subject or this idea to me of how many men are out there that rape women and their friends know about it, but never say anything about it. Okay. It's staggering to me because because you think to yourself, is it really possible that all the men that we know don't know anyone who's ever raped anyone or who's ever taken advantage of a person for you know whatever reason or however they felt they could and they're protected? Yeah.
1: I mean, one out of three women are sexually abused or assaulted, one out of three. And I think it's one out of five or six men are, you know, and I, and part of me, my heart breaks for the men because most, most men don't come out with it, you know, and, and it affects them in a big way. I mean, there are a lot of women don't come out with it too, but, you know, the way I look at it is if you really love someone or care about someone, why wouldn't you hold them accountable or help them? Right, You know, you have a problem, bro, let us let me help you with this or, you know, I mean, and you know, I think the biggest thing that I struggled with, with my rape and with the community is that had I been somebody's daughter, don't tell me that they would not have done something, Right. You know? had I been white, don't tell right. me they would not, you know, would have not done something. Had my dad been a doctor or a pastor or, you know, uh, in leadership, of course, you know, yeah. And it wasn't right. just the principle, it was it was administration in the church right. that turned their eye too. You know, so right. And it wasn't just at that point. It was after I got married that I still tried to do something within the church and say, Hey, we have a problem. But that got shut down. I mean, that was still an era where we still just made everything go away or we moved people to a different
0: state. Yes. You know? Yeah. Yeah. We moved our problems. Right, right. We remove it from here so that you don't see it, but then someone else can report it somewhere else and then we can move them again and and then they won't see it. Very hush hush. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about mental health because that. Right now, I think a lot of people are realizing how important it is, how uh, we all need to be taking care of our mental health and how we have things that affect us that we don't necessarily think affect us, but they do. Like They may not be a rape per se or an uh, an assault or something like that, but there are a lot of things in our communities and, and such that affect us. And so- what are your thoughts or what are your, what is your counsel to those who are experiencing things, but are not seeking counseling or taking care of their mental health?
1: You know, I was talking to my therapist actually yesterday. And, you know, I think one of the biggest things is that counseling isn't accessible to everybody. You know, it's expensive. And I think that's one of the biggest, drawbacks with our, both our countries, Canada and the U S and North America, you know, if counseling was available, I think it would just make such a huge difference in our society. And for me, you know, we have coverage, but it was $500. And, you know, as a young family, that wasn't really an option. You know, I would go to counseling and then the $500 was done in like what, three sessions or something. Right. And, you know, it takes a lot of, It takes time to build trust with a counselor. It takes time to explain your story, you know? Mm -hmm. And so for me, I didn't go to counseling for a very long, well, since, uh, probably just four years ago. It's such a huge part of, um, like mental health. I don't think everyone realizes how much so many people struggle, you Mm -hmm. know, we might not even realize it's a mental health issue, you know, for me, it started as postpartum, you know, Mm -hmm. with my kids. And eventually, it kind of moved on from there, like postpartum didn't go away, it became depression, and then it became something else, you know. And for me, I mean, I'm not obviously qualified to make this statement, but I really believe for me, all my trauma, eventually came to head. And my body just was I can't do this anymore, you know? Because right. I had to be strong. I was strong for my mom, I was strong for my brothers. Then I had a family, have a family, you know? Mm-hmm. And as moms, especially, we don't get a break. We don't take a break, or we feel guilty mm-hmm. for taking a break, you know? Mm-hmm. And my body, I think, just was done. You know, it's right. just, it just, it just stopped. Right. And, and what I mean by that is just my mental health just, my body rebelled and I ended up
0: having a seizure right Um, as one I was gonna say just yeah give us a little bit of tell us a little bit about how your body rebelled against you
1: (laughs) Okay. okay yeah so um initially at some point I started having um like I would be driving and I would see something playing out in my head you know a scenario and it scared me I mean I was like oh my gosh like how am I explaining what happened then it would it would you know fade away and I would so I could still drive or do whatever but once I came out of it I couldn't explain it Mm. like I couldn't tell you what it was about it was just something and yet when I would go back into that um, it was it kind of took off where it left off kind of thing and Mm. I ended up going to my doctor and I was petrified to tell him because I was sure he was going to lock me up and he was just like oh that's depersonalization and I was like oh okay. You know, and, and he, like, for me, it's so important to talk to your doctor because what you think might be crazy. Yeah. There's So many people struggling with the same thing. Like he made it sound like, oh, you have the flu, you know? Uh, And so it's something that so many people apparently study with, struggle with.
0: And can you, can you explain that for us just a little bit for those who don't know what depersonalization means? So depersonalization
1: is, I want to say almost an out of body, like you're seeing a scenario happening that you don't like it. So it's happening. Like, it's like you're dreaming, but you're awake and you can drive and you can see whatever's happening, but something is playing out. Right. And when I snap out of it, I have no idea what it was. And I I really believe that it's your body's way of protecting you from something maybe you don't remember. And I don't know to this day what that is right you know but the interesting thing is that when my dad died my depersonalization stopped the day he died my depersonalization stopped I had two years of it and you know it makes me wow question really like what is it that my dad about my dad I mean like I can't help but say was sexually abuse but right. I don't think I was because I have a very strong memory so I don't think I was You know, I mean, I'm 99% sure that my dad did not sexually abuse me. But what did he do? Or what is it that my body is not able to let me or is protecting me from remembering? Right? You know? um, And so I had that actually until my dad died. So that was something that made me realize, okay, this is obviously linked to my dad. And from that, it ended up going into panic attacks. And, you know, I think panic attacks the definition of panic attacks is so broad like I think we all experience something that science or medicine calls it panic attacks but I think it's really different for everybody you know and right. for me it was just a major rapid heart racing and just like you know when you um, are riding a roller coaster and your your stomach drops
0: or yeah. your heart drops
1: you know yeah. I felt that constantly you know, a heart with my, my heart dropping to my stomach kind of thing. And it was constant, you know, when mm. I would have the attack. Mm-hmm. And it was very hard to live with.
0: Mm. You know,
1: yeah. and then that kind of went to this place where it was a very dark place. And I'm not sure I can explain what happened, because I actually don't have a lot of recollection. But what ended up happening is I couldn't be alone, because I was petrified to be alone.
0: Oh, wow. for lack
1: of a better word, the boogeyman was going to get me. I mean, even right. in the shower, I couldn't step out of the shower without looking behind my shoulder. Like I was oh. petrified, you know, and I'm a really strong person. Like, I mean, I can oh. handle six kids and life and I'm very hyper. My husband will define me. You know, like I have <laughs> a lot of energy and nothing stops me. So for this to, I mean, it rocked our family. You know, and what ended mm. up happening is I was actually going to work with my husband and he's an audiologist. And so I would go to the clinic and work with him for maybe a couple of hours. And then I would end up going to the back room and sleeping until my kids came from school and picked me up and took me home.
0: Mm. And,
1: and my husband would come and, and So this went on for months, like this went on for months. And at some point I would even have my friends pick me up and they would babysit me. And when I would wake up, I would just start crying out of fear.
0: Mm. they would have
1: to let me know you know so it was it was a very dark period I mean I'd say from October till February and then Mm. in February I ended up having a seizure Mm. and no explanation at all you know they did all the testing and my therapist really believes that that was kind of where my body was like look you got to stop.
0: You got to, you got to do something
1: here, you know? Like lady, you're not and paying
0: attention. Hello. No, exactly.
1: Exactly. You know, and, and right. despite the anxiety and despite all this stuff, I mean, I was on a lot of medication, but it wasn't what my body needed. Right. I needed to deal with it, you know? Right. And I was already going to counseling at this point, but I had to deal with issues head on and it was a really hard thing to do you know it Mm. was really really hard rape is a very rape is life-changing and i I know that sounds like it's a simple sentence but it's life-changing like you never you're never innocent again you're always going to look over your shoulder you're always going to have that hyper awareness when you're somewhere you know even in my own home Mm -hmm. um, and this has gotten better with time but even in my own home when i'm alone I make sure everything's Mm locked,
0: you know? And when Mm -hmm. I know the
1: boys have left and I forget to watch, I still look over my shoulder and, and it's gotten better with time. Like I've had to work through this. So like right now, I can tell you that I'm so much better than I was three years ago,
0: Mm -hmm. you know?
1: And part of it is talking myself through and saying, am I safe in this moment? Yes. Do I really need to look over my shoulder? And it's teaching myself. No, you don't. So don't do it. Don't give into it. You know, it's it's one of those things that's so hard, but I want to win this, right? Like, I don't want my rapist to win. Right. And, I mean, he's gone on with his life, you know. Right. So, for me, it's it's learning to overcome. And after my seizure, I couldn't be left alone. Like, partly because of my seizure. I couldn't drive for six months. And my kids ended up babysitting me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it was a very dark, dark, dark period. Yeah. Just for our family. And interestingly enough, it was one year from my seizure that my mom so my mom became very sick and she had pulmonary fibrosis idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and toward the end of her life a year from my seizure February I needed to live with her in Maryland and take care of her for like at the end of her time
0: and Mm -hmm. it's interesting
1: again how God worked because my last panic attack happened the anniversary of my one-year seizure hmm and I haven't had one since, right. you know, and I was able to be with my mom. It wasn't easy. You know, I mm-hmm. still, even to this day, I still struggle and I have my medication that I have to be on and I call it my crazy pill. And the reason I call it my crazy pill is because without it, I feel crazy. Mm-hmm. And I know that's not probably a <laughs> politically correct term. Correct to use, term. But. I, but- yeah, but it's it's me like my other friend calls it her happy pill. You mm-hmm. know, um, I was saying to my I was saying to my kids, oh, can you remind me I got to go renew my prescription. And my poor baby said, shouldn't you have backup? And <laughs> I mean, it <laughs> broke my heart hearing him say that because they, yeah. they went through a lot, too. You know, right. And I'm diabetic. And just like I need to have medication for my diabetes, I have to have medication for my mental health. For well being. Right. And even that was a journey for me to accept, you know. Right. But to be the best me that I can be, I have to take my medication. Right. And I think as a society, if we can make this accessible to everybody, you know, if we can make the cost of medication not as ridiculous as it is, or people that have insurance, or, you know. Um, right. I, I mean, I just think that mental health is something that we need to tackle head on like we do with, you know, drugs and all that kind of stuff, you know, for right. mental health, if we're dealing with it, we wouldn't have some of the other problems that we have. Right. So my encouragement is that, you know, if you're struggling, first of all, you're not alone,
0: you know, yeah. Seek
1: somebody out, Seek somebody out that you trust.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to highlight something that you said and you When you said that you were going through a very dark time and your, you know, your son said, shouldn't you have backup? And and you thought (laughs) to yourself, you know, poor thing, you know, they went through something too. Mental illness is not just about the one person because it affects everyone that is around that person because, you know, depending on the proximity, there's, you know, we tend to lash out to those who are closest to us without without realizing or not even meaning to but because we feel safest with them or they're closest to us they get the brunt of of it because then we know that we can't act like that with company you know (laughs) right exactly We can't can't act like that with other people but when we're home in the safe space we can we can we can we can be okay right out yeah Another thing is that I think dealing with mental health
1: is really hard for males over females to some degree. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like males feel like they need to be stronger. And I think that that's something that I like to think my kids have learned, you know, that mental health, some of it is genetic. And, you know, I have a couple of sons that have had to learn that depression or anxiety is hereditary and there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with it. And, right. and you're a better person to seek help with that you know and we have to talk about that in our family and being on medication it's like taking you know eating your vegetables for some people right right just have to do it you have to do it and you know I think that being open and talking about this especially for my boys and for my boys has made them better people and we've all grown as a family through it and
0: continue to that's awesome so here's a question. So I think that you re- wrote in the book that you believe that your father had some mental illness, right? Yeah. But it was never really diagnosed because he never would go to the doctor. Right. 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 So yeah. is, is it, is it possible you think that that is something that you acquired through him? For um, sure. For sure. Yeah. And not just might- the way that he was, but just genetically as well
1: yeah, for sure it runs in his family but you know i mean he's from india how many mm-hmm. generations that it just goes undiagnosed right like you might think mm-hmm. you know a lot of times people leave home and it's just oh he's he's they use the term crazy you know, yeah. because they don't know what else to, to call it. Right. 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 Um, yes, definitely. It was um, definitely it's strong in my, in my, on uh, my dad's family for sure. I and mean, he's had siblings, but you know, I mean, it breaks my heart because I think what a much richer life my dad could have had as well as us as children had he sought help. Yes. You know, I mean, one of his diagnoses for sure is bipolar mm. disorder, but I do believe he had other um, issues, but you know, I mean, my brothers and I see certain things in our ourselves, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, he's very obsessive compulsive and and we see that in ourselves very much. Mm. So, you know, and so, yes, your question is yes, for sure. My dad, genetics is a strong thing, you know, and it's a very positive thing. You know, my dad's negative traits had he sought help could be very positive, you know, like his OCD things, really could have been a very positive thing in his work and his, you know, how he, how he, um, basically managed. used it, how
0: he conducted managed it yeah. or, yeah. yeah, yeah, so yes, for sure, to your question. Yeah, so, you know, when it's important, just not just for you, but it's important for everybody that's around you as well. So you touched upon a little bit upon the police. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, we have this thing, the the things that are bubbling up now that are showing up Mm -hmm. more and more in terms of the police and how they treat minority people, not marginalized people. And when you wrote about that in your book, I was like, oh my God, I totally get it. Like, why, why would you call the police Ever, you know, why? Because sometimes, you know, sometimes as a black person, I think to myself, I would do everything that I could before calling the police. (laughs) Because to me, I always feel like that would be escalating the problem versus diffusing the problem. Mm -hmm. So, and you write about it in your book, but could you tell us a little bit about? Why you hesitated to call the police, especially after you were raped?
1: So, my ex- our experience with the police was a little different. I mean, so it, they kind of took my dad's side, mm-hmm. you know. So it wasn't really a racist thing. It was more oh, women or oh, our spouses or you know, they yeah. chose not to help us, you know, and that particular time when I called the police my dad had just finished beating my mom black and blue and said he was going to kill us Mm. you know and I called the police to let them know that we need help you know and by the time the police did come my dad had calmed down a bit but they questioned us but at the same time even though they saw my mom's black and blue leg they were sitting at the table the police was sitting at the table and in the end was just having conversation with him like he was fun. They didn't charge him. They did absolutely nothing. And over time, my dad and the, and the officer would wave to each other when they passed each other on the road, you know, driving mm. past each other. Right. And I just didn't see that as, first of all, it was my word against my pastors. Mm. But at the same time, I had my panties that had a semen on it,
0: mm. you know.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's a big part of me that wishes I had. Um, yeah, done it, but mm-hmm. I don't think I, I think, I mean, as I'm talking to you, I'm saying this, but I don't know that I would have had the emotional support of my parents at that moment too. Right. I'm not sure what they would have said, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, they would have not, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. So I was very alone, you know, so it wasn't just the police, it was the community. It was, Right. you know, my mom was, my mom did everything for us you know, she did the best she could that she knew how. Mm -hmm. And so I don't blame her. But she was also emotionally um, absent sometimes. You know, life was so heavy for her that I don't know what she would have done with that. Yeah, Yeah. I I just didn't see the police as being safe. I didn't see our community as being safe. I I didn't see anything. One of my biggest regrets and, you know, something that I don't talk about in the book that just is so infuriating to me because I I actually was just writing a blog post about this is the statute of limitation in the States is just ridiculous. Mm. In Canada, we don't have statute of limitation on rape. And I don't understand why there is, period. You know, um, I was reading, I think it's Minnesota has a three year statute of limitation. And let me tell you something, if you're a rape victim, it takes a lot longer especially a young person to do anything. I mean, some people do something right away given, but you know, I don't believe there should be a statute of limitation on race. And for me, when I was older and looked into it at that time in Ohio, the statute of limitation was nine years Mm -hmm. and I just missed it by a year. Wow. You know, And it was just Mm -hmm. so frustrating for me, you know, Mm -hmm. that has changed.
0: I think it's a little longer now, but, I don't know. It's, it's just so frustrating. Right. Yeah. So it kind of goes back, you know, you're talking about your, your dad waving to the police. It kind of goes back to that good old boys kind of network thing where it's like, you know, Oh yeah, he's doing that, but you know, he has his reasons. And so we're not going to, you know, bother with that. I'm totally with you on that statute of limitations thing. I did not realize that the statute of limitations could be so short Especially like you said, it can take a while before someone can come to terms with what has happened and how they're feeling about it, and then say, Okay, you know what? I really need to report this or do something about it. And yeah, for sure. You know, again, it's something that mostly affects uh, women. And so you have to think that those things that mostly affect women take longer to adjust than those things that mostly affect men and to accept as well. Um, You know, something as simple as birth control. Yes, we're going to create this pill so that men can get it up, but we're going to take our time creating something for women not to, you know, it's, it's just those types of things Um, for sure. Yeah, Very it's
1: frustrating. It's still a main dominated world, you know? Like, I mean,
0: Right, right. We're the making patriarchy is strong. The patriarchy is strong. But, <laughs> exactly, is strong. Exactly. but you know, I mean, strong. the more people share their stories like you have, the more people push against it, then mm-hmm. people have to listen. Eventually, people have to listen and have to go, okay, you know, yeah, maybe this needs to be looked at. Maybe this needs to be changed. This, this, is, this doesn't make any sense, you know, all these different things. And so I think, you know, like I said before, that's what our stories are for. Our stories are for yeah. helping make a difference, right? Helping make a difference. For sure, for sure. Honestly, I have to say that, you know, in reading your book, I never felt that you were weak in this book. Um, I never felt, I mean, I knew you were going through something really hard that was clear. And I, I think, you know, I feel, you know, I think that you go through the emotions that any normal person would go through, who's going through so Mm -hmm. much, but I never felt that you Mm -hmm. were like completely ready to just throw in the towel and just say, you know what, screw this. Um, I, I can't do it. You know, let's, let's, we're not doing this you know and just succumb to whatever came once you said whatever you know um so for that I and and I think that that's what makes it such a beautiful read because everybody's on your side (laughs) you know and reading the book everybody's kind of on your side like oh my gosh What's gonna happen? Oh my gosh, no. Oh my gosh, please, please, you know. Yeah, um, and yeah. we 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 want you to to win. We want you to win. And I think that you did. And I I, I really you. appreciate the way that you yeah. you ended the book. It was it was beautiful the way that you you closed it out because it allowed us to know that everything is gonna be ongoing. It, things are ongoing taking care right. of your mental health is an ongoing thing, but you can find moments where you will then overcome certain things and then you can move on to the next right. thing, which is, right. you know, which is absolutely well, I think beautiful. Mm-hmm.
1: There's a lot of freedom in forgiveness too, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that I think that for my mom, my, my journey with my mom was one of acceptance and forgiveness and forgiveness is kind of a strong word, but just realizing that she did the best she could do with the skills she had in Mm -hmm. her maybe toolbox. And even my rapist, like I get asked all the time, have you forgiven him? And I have, but it's taken a, 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 it's been a journey to do so, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a strong faith Mm -hmm. and I'm, I were him I would be petrified of God you know because mm-hmm. ultimately vengeance is his you know and and one of the things that I've learned is like it's okay to be angry but for me it was also holding me back from mm-hmm. healing mm-hmm. you know I'm never more than likely I'm never going to get the apology that I really really wanted from him right and that kind of I, I believe that that kind of stalled my healing you know, whereas acceptance of like, okay, well, this is really not on me. Um, through counseling, I've had to learn to be gentle with my younger self, and that was something that I have taken years, years to do. You know, right, um, right. To be gentle with her and and not forgive her because I don't think the younger me needed forgiveness, but just understanding because I I held her accountable. You know, I just wish like, oh, you should have you know, in different yeah. situations, then this or that, or, you know, and, and, you know, if I can leave people with this about my book is it's not a happily ever after. No, we've ridden into the sunset. It doesn't work that way. No, you know, no, it's my, hap- it, it's my happily ever after that's ongoing, you know?
0: Right. Yeah. And I think, I think you do a good job of re- relaying that. In the book, you know that it it's your it's still ongoing, but you know it's it's a work in progress. We're all a work in progress, and so I think that you that you do a beautiful job of making sure that that comes through. It comes through in the book. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you did it. You did a beautiful job, and I think it's helpful for a lot of people to read it and to actually see, like you said, they're not alone. Mental health is really important and it's important to, to listen to your body. It's important to listen to what's happening, mm-hmm. you know, with mm-hmm. your body and with the things that you're doing. And if, if they just don't feel right, if something just doesn't feel right, then you, you really got to think about it and get the help that you need for that. Um, I do agree. I it's rid- Yeah. And I do agree. It's ridiculously expensive for a lot of people. And so mental health is not something that people are going to say, okay, I need to go see a counselor, just like I need to go see the gynecologist every year. And I need to go see, you know, my, my, my physician every year. And, you know, I mean, we put those things off all the time. So (laughs) mental health is always going to be at the bottom, right? It's It's like, if we don't have to go to the dentist, you know, we're not going to go every six months, especially if we don't have insurance, right? Exactly. So so those are things that are always going to be put to the bottom where it's incredible to me because your mental health is so important just for day-to-day, right? For sure.
1: I think as moms, that's something that we do also. We always put ourselves last. You know? And I mean, if our kids needed counseling or if our kids were raped or if our kids were suffering from we would find a way to, to help them. Most people Absolutely. would find a way to help them. You know, and I think that what I've learned is I have to put in in some ways I have to put myself higher up on that list so that if I'm healthy, I can help my people, help my kids, help my husband, you know, be there. Um, whereas if I'm not emotionally well,
0: it's very hard for me to do that. Right. Then you're pouring from, from an empty cup. Da- absolutely. Right. And it's so true. It's, and it's something that happens to us naturally. I think it's something that we're socialized in a way to just believe that once we get married, now we have to put our husbands first, then we have children, then we have to put the kids first, then the husband, then us. And so it's like, have you eaten? Have you eaten? Oh, there's a little bit left over. I'll eat now. Right. It's, and you right. know, you go to the exactly. store. What's the first thing you do? Oh, you see something you're like, oh, you know what? Zia needed some socks. Let me go get her some socks. That's oh my right. gosh. You know, Travis <laughs> needed some underwear. Let me get him some underwear. Then you get home and you put on your holy underwear and you're, Two mismatched socks. Yeah. Because you just because, you know, because it's so you, true. you haven't even thought about what you need. And if you do think about what you need, you're like, oh my gosh, look at these underwear. They're five for $10. I'm gonna, oh, it's can I so spend true. that much on myself? <laughs> right? Do you that think I can so spend true. that much on myself? But you, you've already spent like you know 50 bucks on everybody else, and so then you're true. like, Oh, yeah, it's an extra ten dollars. So, you know, it's like, we're, it? Yeah, we're so all... it's, it's so true, <laughs> but it's so important to actively and intentionally put ourselves first sometimes so that we can actually not feel resentment not feel frustration not feel anger not feel you know all these things that can come up that you'll feel towards your family and they have nothing to do with it it's all you you're you're the one doing it right it's so so important yes it's so important agree So is there anything that you would like to share that I haven't asked about or that we haven't, you know, touched upon, but that you would really like to share with the audience?
1: I mean, I I think what I would like to leave is that if you are hurting, if you are broken, you're not alone. You know, I think that's the one thing that I want my book to come across is that you're not alone. We all have something that's broken. And it takes a lot of strength to seek help, you know, and I'm not talking necessarily counseling. I'm talking about sharing with somebody, someone you trust, you right. know, especially with abuse, you know, whether it's sexual, physical, emotional, you're not alone. And, you know, the one thing that I love is uh, that I chose my title beautifully broken. is because we're all broken in some way, but it's like a stained glass, you know, you can still put all these broken pieces together and, Still, something amazing, you know, that you Absolutely. never thought would be possible. And, you know, I'm beautifully broken, and my life, I it, it will continue that way. But just don't give up. You know, you just got to put that foot in front of the other. And sometimes, for me, sometimes it literally was that hour. Okay, mm-hmm. I can do this hour, you know. Or be honest, and sometimes I call my husband and say okay, I'm really struggling. I don't think I can do supper tonight, or I don't think I can do whatever, you know, mm-hmm. um, I think the key to the baby step is to tell somebody if you're struggling, even your doctor.
0: Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. 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 Wow. Well, it's, um, I agree with you. I agree. So my last question that I ask all, all of my <laughs> guests is, what is your favorite dish? Because of course this is a diversity dish and we have to talk about dishing a little bit. So <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite dish? Um, as in food? Yeah. Chicken
1: curry. What I make, that? um, chicken, cur- chicken curry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Chicken curry with some coconut rice. Yeah. It's our, it's our family favorite. I can never make enough. If you can imagine six, <laughs> seven boys seven men um, Yes. yes so we love love chicken curry with some coconut rice it's our go-to meal
0: i love it i love What's it yours? you know what you give me anything that's made with potatoes oh <laughs> i'm a happy camper oh, i'm a happy nice. camper yes. i love potatoes yes. however you make them <laughs>
1: oh, you're making me hungry
0: I know. know, That's what happens. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you so much for being here. I so appreciate you opening up and sharing your story um, because I think that it is so important to do that. And I, and I just, I love your book. I'm like, I said, I'm going to link it in the show notes, make sure everybody has an opportunity to read it. It's an easy, it's an easy read in that it just moves so quickly in terms of you get engrossed in the story it's less than 200 pages but it is really a strong it's just a really strong story that I think everyone could benefit from um, I will also link in the show notes some information for ways to people to find mental health help mm-hmm. at a lower cost. Um, oh, I think man, I have some information great. for that, but I think, yeah, because you know we talked about the cost of it and it is costly. But I think that there there are a lot of nonprofits right now that are working yeah. to make it more accessible important for everyone and so I want to link some Crazy. of those things in the show notes as well so, awesome. thank, you so yeah, thank you so
1: thank much. you so
0: much for having
1: so me baby you. it was lovely to
0: see your face sending you a hug hey did you enjoy that episode if so Please be sure to subscribe, download, rate, review, and share. It would also mean the world to me if you became a patron over at Patreon. The information is in the show notes. Thank you and we'll see you next time.